This is Bethany Hughes for the National Trust. Roman Britain is fascinating at the best of times, but today I'm exploring one of the largest and most lavish Roman villas in the UK. It is a brilliantly illuminating place, an expansive site that enjoyed its heyday in the golden age of the 4th century AD, just a generation or so before the Romans left Britain for good. And what adds to the allure of the place I'm approaching right now as house martins and wood pigeons fly around me. I can even see pheasants pecking away at the grass beneath. Chedworth Villa in the Cotswolds, which was discovered in the 1860s, is that it's still being excavated. And so every year, the site yields fresh clues to its ancient past. A past that enjoyed continental connections. And here to let me into the secrets of the house is Martin Patworth, who's been the Director of Archaeology here for the National Trust since 2010. Hello, Martin. Morning. Morning. Nice to meet you. Lovely to see you. But first of all, I just have to ask, whose house is this? I wish we could tell you. (laughs) We've really no idea, but we've got sort of clues in the things that were excavated. But whether that person was a local person made good, or a governor from the wider empire, or... A soldier who'd retired in the area, we just don't know. But there's lots of possibilities. Whoever it was, he had money. That, I mean, you can tell just from standing here. So I'm at the top of the hill, I can see the site stretching way out beyond and beneath me. And can you take me in and then we can try to piece together the jigsaw puzzle of the information? Yes, I will, yes. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to take you through the back door. We're going to go into the dining room through the kitchen, so we must imagine that we're bringing something tasty for the owner and his family or not, whoever his guests are. That sounds very appropriate. I'm very happy to be a servant or indeed your slave for the day, (laughs) Martin. (laughs) So you've covered over some of the site. This is obviously to preserve what's inside. Yes, this has only been open since 2012, so it's a brand new building, but on the footprint of the original west range of the villa. So it's... uh, very exciting. We're seeing a lot more mosaics now. A lot of these were just covered under tarmac until very recently. Oh, how lovely. Look at this going in. So this is our, our main corridor of the west range of the villa, which has some of the principal rooms of the whole house within it. And we're actually now on the passageway that leads us into the main dining room. So we'll walk down here. Keeping um, our eyes down, remembering we're the slaves and the servants, so right. you're not, not being too cocky. This is the triclinium, which means three couches, really. So people would sit on these patterns around the back here, the three sides, and they'd be looking towards us. And where we're standing, you could have entertainments, dancers or music players, things like that. And this is the most decorative part of the surviving mosaics in the whole villa. So if you look on the corners, you can see the seasons a lovely little scene going all around so these are the seasons how about winter I see winter being out hunting with his cloak on he's got a hair and he's got some sticks for the fire perhaps and is this cloak that he's wearing is this this very famous Beerus Britannicus it's kind of one of our greatest exports in Britain cross between a cape and a sort of duffel coat yes it's a very sort of specialised British type of fashion which um, was exported to the empire I mean that's interesting already because immediately we're here in Gloucestershire, 
But the fact that that top-selling export has been immortalised in the mosaic just reminds us of the connections that there were in this place to, to a much wider world. Yes, that's right. What you're seeing here are classical images of stories. Bacchus, with all the nymphs and dryads around, it's all links to the views and the beliefs and the stories that well-to-do people in Britain were bringing across, a bit like, I suppose, Hollywood in this country. You know, we look to the continent. So, yes, all the, the stories they read, the politics they were talking about were all to do with the greater empire. Mm. Really interesting, but two-way traffic. So we've got duffelcoats going out and Greco-Roman gods and goddesses coming back in. OK, well, we're just coming into the first bathhouse here. This is the changing room on the left, so you get yourself ready. And this bath was a steam bath, so there'd be a boiler out on the edge which would be stoked up by the slaves and it would create steam that would make you sweat. And right at the very end, you can walk down some steps and there's a cold plunge in there. Very funny that there are baths. I mean, my goodness, you don't get more Roman than this, do you? You know, yes, come that's... here and have a sweat and then a plunge. Yeah, you know, the ordinary Brits before the Romans came, they wouldn't have had their own baths, obviously not. There was a bit of a sort of a gradual catalytic effect of the classical influences coming gradually, gradually across Europe. And so the people living here could quite easily just be wealthy Brits made good using the economics made available with their links with the wider empire. And as the money built up, this place built up, got bigger and bigger. There's lots of possibilities, but definitely strong, strong links with Europe and the Roman Empire. Whoever it is, they're proving that they've got deep contacts back into the heart of the Roman Empire. We're walking up the slope now, and this is where the water source is. This is what they call the Nymphaeum. It's called that because it became a shrine to the water nymph. You'll see in front of us there's a little octagonal pool and the water still flows into the pool, and this would be the water source for the whole of the villa. How lovely, lovely clear spring water in there. Altars were found here when it was first excavated in the 1860s. Because the water source was so key to the place, it was valued as a holy water source. Isn't it right that there's been discovered here a, a stone with the Cairo symbol, the, the, the symbol of early Christians inscribed on it? Yes, that's right. There are actually more than one. There's a number of crosses and Cairo's found here. So it has been interpreted that later on, when the empire adopted Christianity, this became a baptistry. Mm, really interesting, because its heyday, this place, is in the 4th century, isn't it? So, and of course, that's the time Rome is beginning to move even further east. So you've got the new Rome, Constantine's renamed Byzantium Constantinople. And that's really interesting if there's Christianity here, because that means that these people have got connections going right the way over to the far edge of Europe and even into Anatolia. Yes, it would be not unexpected that the owners here would have been in the fourth century Christians. Well, whatever the spirituality of the men and women who lived here in antiquity, the nymphaeum is certainly being appreciated now because there are chaffinches and blackbirds who've just popped down to have their early morning drink. Got a very lovely, nourishing feel to this place. Beautiful. We're going through a colonnade with a pediment over the top and we go into this little sort of covered area, up a flight of stairs, and now we're in the second range of baths in the north range of the villa. They are really, really keen on their baths here, yes. aren't they? 
We're in room 21 at the moment, and this is where we were working in last year. And in our trench, we found that it's filled with debris from the 4th century, so it was deliberately backfilled. And of course, archaeologists love rubbish, and 4th century rubbish is really exciting. So it's like a time vault beneath our feet. And in that, it's like there was a mosaic floor here which they just imploded and threw into the hypercourse basement. So to actually find that decoration underneath your feet is very exciting. I mean, really exciting. How were they living in the 4th century? How were they choosing to surround themselves with decorations from what you can tell from the fragments of plaster? Well, Nancy will show you some of the colours, but um, very intricate designs. Some of them look quite modern. Some of the art deco. They're quite surprising some of the things we're finding here. Um, discovering all that, I mean, what did it make you think about the men and women who were living here? Because I think we've got a bit of a kind of stereotype in our heads that actually if you ended up in Britannia, you'd pull very much the short straw. There was this damp, wet, windy island that the Romans had always originally had quite a bit of anxiety about. They talked about it as this kind of ferox provincia, the ferocious province. I mean, do you get the feeling that people enjoyed being part of Roman Britain here or is it almost a bit of an armpit of a place? In a sense they could be anywhere mm. and I always imagine Britain like New Zealand is the British Empire it was like that like far-flung place but people trying to get a little bit of expat luxury around them mm. but this place in Britain is high-end and it's one of the best you could see reflecting Rome. Nancy Grace is an archaeologist who looks after all the finds here. Hi, Nancy. Hello. <laughs> nice to see you. What a lovely place to work, because not only have you got the antique collection here, there's ongoing work, isn't there? So presumably there are new finds every year for you to take care of. Yeah, one of the lovely things we've got from last year's excavation is lots of painted plaster from the walls. And the piece I've got here is about hand size. Can I be really cheeky and ask if I can hold yes, it? Yes, you can, yeah. It's pretty tough stuff. Really interesting to look at the decoration, though, because it's not what you'd normally get, the sort of slightly fluid patterns or just the lines. It's quite blocky, it's almost cubist. Uh, so you've got black lines, there's a cream colour, a kind of soft green, a very soft burnt sienna, and then a darker maroon. I mean, I've never seen a pattern like this. It's, it's quite different from what you normally get on the walls. It was quite a shock when it came out. <laughs> I mean, it really short-circuits you back to the world of the living, doesn't it? Yeah, and that they were just like us. I mean, we've got pieces, there's a piece here, where they've actually obviously changed their idea of what they wanted. And there's a piece of a blue stripe here with black edging with mortar on top of it. So they've actually covered that scheme with a new layer of mortar and plaster to do a new design. So like now when you redecorate your house and you find 16 layers of wallpaper that previous people have done, they were doing exactly the same thing. We haven't changed in what we do. And what about the connections of this place to the wider world? Because this is something that we hear about in the literary texts, but do you see the hard evidence of it in the ground? Yeah, it's mainly seen in pottery, so sort of imports of different sorts of pottery. We've got some over here in this case. We've got some amphora, which are the big wine jars, and also they contained olive oil and olives as well. There's a big piece here. You can see the finger marks in the pottery inside. Uh, yes. 
You can actually touch the past and put your fingers where the potter put them. Oh, you can. So that's the marks. Can I, can I touch that? Yeah, yeah. Touch the past. That's so lovely. So <laughs> I've walked in the footsteps of the past before, but I don't think I've ever had my fingers touching the fingerprints of the past. And where are these coming from? Well, we've found that we're getting Spanish amphora. Uh, some of them with maker's marks stamped on them. We've also had three pieces from Cyprus. There's not a lot found, so at Chedworth that's been quite exciting to find that they're getting imports as far as Cyprus. And the uh, last few years we've found even a piece from Palestine. So we've got some Palestinian amphora. Again, is quite a rare find. And they often had specific things. So the Spanish ones might have mainly olive oil and olives and Cyprus might have wine in it. So you've got different types of amphora bringing different types of consumable. That is remarkable, isn't it? Just imagining the people here eating food that came from the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East, you know, sort of enjoying kind of Middle Eastern metze in Gloucestershire. Yeah, it's a way to show off that they could afford not just the local fare, um, yeah, and Roman stuff, eating the same things as they would in Rome. Um, what about new material? Has any of that come through from abroad? Yeah, very exciting, actually. We found last year a large piece of marble. It's a sort of bluey, grey and white marble with darker blue grey lines running through it, known as Little Onion marble from a Greek island. And it would have come in via London, and then the owner at Chedworth would have gone and got it from London, we suspect. It's not something that everyone gets chance to have a bit of. All the marble pieces look like they all come from Eastern Mediterranean, and also from quarries that the emperor had first call on that they were able to get hold of this material. It puts a totally new light on the owner at Chedworth, who he was. He's not just high status. I mean, he's kind of super high status, isn't he? He knows all the right people and has all the right contacts. So he's going to be someone who's very important, more important than I think we realised. Because to be able to get hold of this type of material, he's got to be in the know and in the right loop. Genuinely exciting, so cosmopolitan, and I love the idea that he's putting marble maybe on his bathroom wall and going, do you know who has something like this? The Emperor. <laughs> and now it's here at Chedworth. <laughs> There's a fabulous little bit of archaeology here that just speaks volumes. It's a small scrap of stone and on it somebody has inscribed the words Prasina. Now that's a Latin word that means green and the Greens were a sporting team, they were charioteers and they raced both in Rome and in the New Rome in Constantinople and people at this time were passionate in their support of one or the other. So I love the fact that just this tiny little bit of graffiti tells us that somebody here in Chedworth 1,600 years ago was rooting for their favourite chariot team racing out in either Rome or Constantinople. It's just like somebody in Britain today being a fan of the Galatasaray football team in modern-day Istanbul. We're walking along a tarmac path now with grass either side. I mean, had we been here in the 4th century, Martin, what would we be seeing around us? 
Well, we'll have walked through the green door, the private space, and we're now walking towards the summer dining room. We've left the public baths and the reception hall behind us. And we're in a much wider corridor than the one we had in the West Range. So higher, better building with a better catching of the sunlight too. We're looking uh, south now and we've got another large room here. It's another dining room. Some people say that there was a winter dining room, which is the one we first saw, and this one, the summer dining room, which has the best views right down the valley. Beautiful, beautiful vista. I mean, it seems to me the most brilliant place to choose to have as a dining room. What would they have been looking out on then, do you think? Originally, we thought there might be just a few farm buildings down there. But now we've done our research and our geophysical survey, we think that it might have been a bit of a designed landscape. There are at least two quite classical buildings out there made of stone, which we picked up with our geophysics. And um, I'd like to imagine it, it's where they were bringing their neighbours, people they wanted to impress, perhaps their bosses, their honoured guests. Really interesting that this is kind of early landscape gardening happening here because, of course, that does happen closer into the heart of empire. So it's almost as if the people here are saying, when not in Rome, do as Rome. Yes. You wanted to bring a piece of the wider, fashionable design that you'd seen elsewhere in the empire, imported here, and show the locals what there is further afield. I think it would be a wow to people who'd never seen it before. The heyday of the villa at Chedworth was the 4th century AD. In the early 5th, with the departure of Roman soldiers from the province of Britannia, what some are now calling the original Brexit, and with the collapse of the imperial Roman system, the writing was on the wall for luxurious cosmopolitan residences at what had been the very outposts of empire. Well, we've just come down some steps and we're in the lower courtyard. And it's thought that these buildings were mainly where the slaves lived, where the more practical sides of things went on. It was out of the sunlight, it wasn't the best place to be. Just to the left of us is where they did a small excavation. And there they found that the corridor had later been used to dry grain. So it's good evidence that the villa was being just used for farm stuff. They were outside the Roman Empire by that time. The money was going and the economy was collapsing. And in the West Range, when we were working in there, we found the mosaic had actually been worn away and no one had repaired it. They just shoved clay and sand in there and a few bits of pottery. And that's the same sort of decline period. So they're grinding corn on these beautiful mosaics. I know elsewhere there's evidence of braziers being lit and even cows being held in what were once great dining rooms. It's a real reminder of how the mighty are fallen. Archaeological sites like this are always so salutary. They speak of the churn of civilizations, the rise and fall of powers and faiths. But they also reinforce that, particularly if our wallets are big enough, we've long enjoyed being global citizens, kitting out our bathrooms in exotic marble, living the cosmopolitan dream. Mind you, as you walk round sites like Chedworth, it's worth perhaps remembering that all this luxury was only possible because Rome, like it has to be said most other ancient cultures, operated a vigorous slave economy. So we shouldn't be too rose-tinted about what went on here. There were victims, now lost to history, 
as well as the winners who are powerful enough to make a glittering mark on Iron Age Britain. A mark that has lasted 2,000 years down time and is now slowly being teased back out of the earth. For more information about Chedworth Roman Villa, including opening times and dates, go to www.nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Chedworth Roman Villa. Thank you for listening. Don't forget this is part of a 10-part series and the other programmes can be found by searching for Bethany Hughes' 10 Places, Europe and Us on the National Trust website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I'm Bethany Hughes. This podcast was commissioned by Ivo Dorney and was produced by Melissa Fitzgerald. It was a Blakeway production for the National Trust. Autumn in the garden, whether it's raking, harvesting, planting or planning next year's big show or the winter's big task, there's always lots to do. It never really stops. Which is why the National Trust has created a brand new podcast all about our gardens, hosted by me, Alan Power, head gardener at Stourhead in Wiltshire. I really can't wait to walk you around some of the country's most stunning gardens, sharing their stories, secrets and talking to the amazing people who help to look after these beautiful places and changing landscapes. If you subscribe... We'll even give you a few extra programmes throughout the month too. So find us now by searching for the National Trust Gardens podcast. And in the meantime, if you're at Stourhead or any other National Trust garden, say hello as you wander our estates.